right, all right. That's the foghorn. You know it means it's time for the Cavus Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships podcast is sponsored in part by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII delivering hard stuff done right. And by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash marine. Coming up, bigger is indeed better, at least 25 out of 28 times in naval warfare. Strategist Sam Tangretti will join us to talk about why bigger fleets win and what the U.S. Navy should do about it in the face of the ever-expanding Chinese Navy. But first, a look at this week's naval news. The destroyer USS Nitsa arrived off Istanbul, Turkey on February 3rd and anchored off the city before heading to visit the Turkish naval base at Galchuk. It appears to be the first time the U.S. Navy warship has gone through the Turkish Straits as far as Istanbul since December 2021, before Russia's February 24th invasion of Ukraine nearly a year ago. There appear to be no plans for the ship to enter the Black Sea. And also on February 3rd, the deployed carrier USS George H.W. Bush arrived at Piraeus, Greece for a port call. And in the Western Pacific, the USS Nimitz continues to patrol the South China Sea with her strike group. The United States and the Philippines announced an agreement to designate an additional four bases for U.S. military forces to operate from, part of an Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, or EDCA, to house U.S. troops and their equipment in Philippine military bases. The announcement on February 2nd did not specify individual bases, but it is widely expected that the former U.S. naval base at Subic Bay could again be open to U.S. ships. The new agreement brings the number of EDCA bases to nine. In old ship news, Brazil's government, as of February 3rd, plans to sink the decommissioned aircraft carrier Sao Paulo in a planned and controlled sinking in deep water within the country's exclusive economic zone and outside environmental protection areas. The Brazilian Ministry of Defense said the carrier's condition is poor with an inevitability of spontaneous controlled sinking. Sao Paulo is the former French aircraft carrier Foch, launched in 1959. As with most warships of that era, asbestos was widely used in construction as a fire retardant, and the ship reportedly still contains much of that cancer-causing substance. The decision to sink the ship is highly controversial because of the environmental hazards, and Brazil has brushed aside internal protests and rejected several outside efforts to help dispose of the ship including a $6 million offer from the Sila Saudi Arabian Jeddah Group to purchase the vessel. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right, on to the discussion portion of our show. Our guest this week is Sam Tangretti, who teaches naval strategy at the Naval War College. He's a retired Navy captain, a surface warfare officer, who has published at least five books and wrote an article in the current U.S. Naval Institute Proceedings magazine that caught our attention, titled Bigger Fleets Win. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Tangretti. Thank you, Chris. It's my pleasure to be here. So let's set the stage. 
The Chinese Navy's incredibly rapid expansion over the past 20 years or so has propelled it to become the world's largest Navy. The Pentagon estimates it's, it's something around 340 ships today. That compares with 293 deployable U.S. Navy ships. The Chinese Navy is estimated to number well over 400 ships in only a few years, while the U.S. Navy doesn't project reaching the 330 ship level until at least the 2030s. In your article, you noted that out of 28 naval wars studied, going back to the Greeks versus the Persians, 25 of those conflicts were won by the side with a larger naval fleet. And the three you noted were a smaller, technologically advanced fleet won, the Byzantine Empire before 1000 AD, the Portuguese in the Indian Ocean during the 16th century, and the British East India Company et al. versus Imperial China in the 19th century. The odds in a word seem stacked against the underdog. So this seems to be sort of a foregone conclusion, bigger fleets win. Why do you feel the need to write this now? What's the impact you're looking for? Well, Chris, before I begin, I've got to give you that statement that uh, these are my personal views and are, are not the official position of the Naval War College or any element of the U.S. government. The motivation, Chris, is that uh, since 1991 or even before, whenever anyone had discussed this need for a sizable fleet, the answer from political leadership and sometimes Navy leadership was uh, always, well, our ships are better. They're, they're technologically advanced than anybody else. Um, you don't necessarily need numbers because of the technological advantage. I have a colleague at the Naval War College. Um, his name is John Caverly. He's done a lot of work for OpNav, who has this uh, teaching tool of uh, asking always, how do we know that? And in fact, he even designed a course with that title. I don't know if the course was ever taught, but um, it's a good teaching tool, a big word is pedagogic tool, um, but you can apply it to practically everything because this question is, you know, what is the evidence for this statement? Because a lot of statements are made about national security and defense, they're assumptions, basically. So I apply that statement to the question or the statement that you don't need a larger fleet because your ships are technologically more advanced. We should not worry about numbers. Numbers don't always matter. That's that's the phrase. Numbers don't matter or they don't always matter. And the question is, how do we know that? And the answer is, we don't know that for two reasons. One is if you go back to history, you don't see um, much evidence of that. And also, um, if you look at operations research, and if you look at some of the work that has been done, even for the Army from the Dupuis Institute, which is independent uh, institute uh, that studies the outcomes of war based on uh, calculations, basically campaign analysis, um, you don't see evidence for that. The, those who work in the campaign analysis say this. They say, we can build war games. We could do simulations. But we have no actual evidence that a force armed with precision weapons could defeat an equally capable force. What we have is evidence of uh, modern warfare in which a larger and much more competent force faced a smaller, often incompetent, and capable force who could not strike back at the networks that the larger force had. And okay, yeah, the, large, uh, the uh, more capable force beat them, even if they had larger numbers. But that's not 
the sort of conflict we anticipate <clears throat> if there's a conflict in the Western Pacific between the US and the Chinese Communist Party. So the question is, how do we know that? Looking at history, it seems to indicate we don't know that. In fact, that the statement's not necessarily true. Now, I don't say that every one of those 25 wars were won by the larger size because some of them were equal size. And my also caveat is that it's um, when, when both sides has equal competence, that is, they know how to operate the Navy. But in the case where there's equal competence and capabilities are e relatively equal and um, perhaps one size is larger, the, the larger size size fleet wins. Um, uh, Wayne Hughes, the great uh, master of naval tactics, uh, demonstrated using his salvo equations that, uh, as he put it, you know, two ships firing uh, at a certain pace uh, always seem to defeat one ship that can fire twice as fast. Uh, it, numbers matter because of the um, reasons that I list in the article um, that you can conduct attacks from multiple axis. Your platforms can span greater space. You uh, could have platforms in different theaters. Um, there are a whole host of reasons where having more ships reasonably capable uh, will defeat a smaller Navy, even if they have some technological advantage that they begin with. So there are, there are any number of uh, examples in history where somebody has tried to go for quality over quantity. I mean, the American Navy itself started off with the, with the six frigates. They built most most of those, not all of them, were larger frigates than the British. On in one-on-one -on -one, uh, encounters, they they uh, prevailed. The British, however, eventually massed, you know, not one by one, either hunted them down or bottled them up. And after a couple of years or so, they were that 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 advantage was negated. It ran for a while. There's multiple examples throughout history where certain advantages started off with a major impact and then a solution was found. Usually not all that long, a year or two, if you could outlast that. Um, recently, we've talked about offset strategies. You know, not, not too long ago, Bob Work and his uh, third offset strategy, um, looking for you know, te technological advantages over the others that are sides, whichever they may be, so networks, uh, weapons. You don't seem to be a big believer, though, in those offset strategies. Well, it's not a question of believing. It's a question of finding out in history when they work. Have the offset strategies actually work? Now, the offset strategies are tied to the period where we develop nuclear weapons. And the assumption, of course, if you have nuclear weapons, you're going to defeat the enemy because you're going to destroy so much of the enemy. But as far as offset strategies, just like those um, studying the, the you know, operations research for the army, um, we have no historical evidence that they're actually successful. Um, a lot of uh, forces have developed uh, advanced technology because they knew they could not build a, a fleet or force uh, at the size of the opponents. And that's why we adopted the whole nuclear, tactical nuclear deterrence uh, scheme is because the um, uh, Soviet forces, the uh, Warsaw Pact had a larger number of forces and seemed to be more devoted to spending their 
spending more of their economic strength on the military. So he needed to offset them. And um, it seemed to have deterred them. And deterrences are, you know, primary, our primary goal. We would rather deter wars than fight them. But there's no evidence that actually works. And that, that's my point. My point is not necessarily that uh, these plans could not theoretically work. Uh, intuitively, they make a lot of sense. My point is, one, we don't have any historical evidence that they actually work. And two, um, if you base your defense strategy on offsets or the fact that your technological advantage, advances could defeat a much larger force, you need to own the risk. You need to come up and say, okay, this is based on the premise that these offsets work. This is based on the premise that this is done, but we really don't have evidence, so we're taking taking a risk here. And if you buy the risk, if the political leadership or the Navy's leadership or Defense Department leadership's prepared to buy that risk and admit up front that uh, there's a great deal of uncertainty, then um, that's a political choice. It's not uh, nobody elected me to be anything, so it's not really um, mine necessarily to argue. My, my argument is you have no evidence for those statements, so you, you've got to admit the risk. And uh, I would argue for a larger Navy, but uh, my point in that is it's not simply some sort of emotional reaction. I'm a naval officer and all that. It's the question of is there evidence? How do we know that? Is there evidence that those statements are true? And as far as I can see, there is none. As I'm, I'm looking through your article again now, I mean, it, it, for those that haven't read it, I, I would strongly encourage you, in addition to listening to this discussion, go back and read it because it's it's actually very well organized um, to, you know, understand uh, the, this argument. And it, as you just mentioned, it's, it's very much an unemotional argument. Some of us tend to get emotional over this, you know, to the point that you just made, hey, we wear a uniform or we wore a uniform, therefore, you know, then we should have a larger Navy. I mean, you you really sort of methodically go through and, and talk about where those larger navies um, have, uh, ha- have prevailed. In the three cases where um, a smaller, more technologically advanced Navy did prevail, um, and recognizing that it it's, has been quite a while, can you draw any comparisons to where we are now? I find myself so so much in agreement with what you're writing. I'm trying to to find the other side, uh, but I mean, those that maybe would disagree, can they? Is there any historic evidence that would support their argument in those three cases? Well, okay. Uh, one of the cases is a thousand years old. Right. <laughs> um, in each of those situations, uh, the uh, force that had the smaller force was facing a, a different situation that we face today. Uh, in the case of the Byzantine Empire, the empire was being overrun by whole, for- whole forces, particularly the Muslim. They were losing territory, and they knew that. Um, they knew that their only chance of maintaining the uh, sovereignty of Constantinople, of that region, was through naval forces. And uh, they had a tool, Greek fire, that was more advanced than the, the enemies. And they successfully used this in, in a number of battles until 
the technology was pretty much dispersed. It's interesting in the case of Greek fire, nobody's actually knows what the formula is, but uh, what uh, the Arabs in particular, the Muslims in particular, they were able to develop something very similar. It's just the closest thing is napalm, but we're not quite sure if, if um, that was the actual formula. So that's a different situation. You have an empire that's collapsing and that knows it does not have the money. It does not have the forces. It will never have that. That's one of the reasons that they, they encourage the West to have a crusade to come help them in that region. So their view is that they're a little different than how the United States is. We don't have a, nobody's invading the United States and we're not in that position. In the case of uh, Portugal in the Indian Ocean, it was a policy of expansion. It was based on um, supporting their trade and trying to penetrate those markets that were dominated by the Islamic world and trade with the people in the region. And uh, they were challenged at that by the Ottomans. The Ottomans could not produce uh, or their own gunnery or produced it only in small amounts because most of their um, ar artillery, most of their ordnance came from uh, Venice, the great arsenal of Venice. Um, so in that case, we have a situation where Portugal has access to uh, that technology and the Ottomans don't, but they weren't, this was a, a trade war. This was a, it, it was trying to achieve uh, places that the Portuguese could dominate the trade of the region. It's kind of different than what we're faced in, would face in a Taiwan Strait situation. And the British East India Company is fighting against an incompetent enemy. Uh, not only are they not up to Western standards, but their fleet is not organized. There are four separate fleets. Each of the head head of the Chinese fleets uh, are rivals of the other. Uh, everybody's fighting for power. You have a empress who is taking the money that's supposedly allocated to the navy and building herself uh, a new palace. Um, happened to be that part of it was in the form of a stone ship. A a stone ship so she could justify saying that uh, she's building a navy um so those are not situations that are applicable to this this circumstance the situation that is applicable is closer to world war ii in the pacific than it is to any of those and we know what really provided victory in the World War II in the Pacific, the atomic bomb obviously prevented uh, a, the need for an actual invasion from the home islands. But by that time, the uh, Imperial Japanese Navy had been wiped from the sea. And it's, it was simply a matter of time before the U.S. would uh, succeed. I mean, that you know, victory was in sight. The issue was the U.S. did not want um, too many of its... Uh, personnel to die so uh, that's that's what happened uh, atomic bombs were used to save lives what do you say to the argument um that um halls may not be the right um measurement in terms of comparing fleet to fleet that um that now there you, you know you you have to look at other capabilities as part of that when measuring navies and that the idea of 
200 something to 300 something is not the right measurement. Um, I, my sense is you'd say that that doesn't hold up and you'd point to your examples, but I want to give you that, that opportunity that, you know, some people have said tubes, some people have said missiles, there, there have been different offerings. What, what are your thoughts on a different metric in terms of actually measuring naval power? Well, hulls are built to have weapons and have systems. And obviously you want to have the most capable systems on those hulls. The reason the hulls matter is because you could separate those systems at different distances and in different ways, add different combinations of force, and then operate against an enemy. Um, I am not saying that in some cases, uh, the networks that we build using our uh, advanced C4ISR, um, I'm not saying that those are not important. What I'm saying, and I think uh, others have said, is that we have no evidence that those would be the key to victory, except when we're fighting incompetent opponents. I mean, precision weapons work right in Iraq. On the other hand, Saddam could not fight against those networks. Uh, precision weapons have worked, well, such as it is, uh, great in Afghanistan. Um, you know, uh, uh, not just precision weapons, but our entire uh, information systems, C4ISR systems, uh, but we still didn't win there uh, as a strategic objective. When I look at these wars, I'm not looking about individual battles because smaller navies have won individual battles. Somebody wrote a letter to proceedings that I saw that says, you know, you know, what about the Battle of Salamis? The Greeks had a smaller navy. They defeated the Persians. I'm not saying that a smaller navy giving uh, a tactical advantage cannot defeat a larger uh, force in a battle. I'm just saying a war, and I define it as achieving strategic objectives. The one side achieves the strategic objectives uh, is what I'm looking at. You know, and uh, if you look at the modern scenarios, like in the Western Pacific, a lot of people talk about technological advantage and they make some assumptions. First, they assume that the war would be relatively short. And uh, my argument, the argument of a lot of people is saying, you know, if this war lasts more than two weeks, we're out of precision weapons. So what are you going to do then? Are you just going to concede uh, the success? Now, if you have a larger fleet, you can replace losses. Um, then you keep fighting and eventually, hopefully you prevail. But if you don't have that, then there's a certain point, uh, and I tried to illustrate this as an equation, there's a certain point when the enemy's forces are so much larger than yours that you just can't defeat them, no matter what your technological advantages are, and particularly in the scenario where you have two technological near peers, the People's Liberation Army Navy, just like the rest of the People's Liberation Army, may not be battle tested. They don't have the experience in that, but they certainly don't seem to be incompetent. And any uh, capability that U.S. builds, they build too. Um, PLAN is a great, great uh, testament to the success of the U.S. Navy. Um, if they say, you know, imita imitation is the uh, highest form of flattery, then we should be very flattered because whatever we buy, they buy or try to buy. 
uh, however, you know, how we're organized is how they're trying to organize. Why? Because they've seen the success of USS Great Sea Power, and they want that. They want to displace us as the world sea power. So they're building to do that. Uh, there's no mystery on what they're trying to do. You know, um, our problem was in the 1990s when globalization was viewed as inevitable and continuing. You know, the administration thought that we could convince uh, the Chinese Communist Party to be a responsible stakeholder. That was the term used um, in the world economy and the global system. Well, they didn't want to be a responsible stakeholder in our system. They want their own system. And to have your own system, you need a large Navy because navies are geoeconomic instruments. They ensure that your trade can never be cut off by another. And in fact, they give you the power to threaten to cut off the trade of others. And uh, the reason that the U.S. has a, uh, the dollar is the reserve currency today in a large part is because we had the largest Navy and we could dominate the, the trade of the world. That's, that's it. A lot of people say, well, you know, commerce is done electronically today. Yeah, you ship money around that way, but you don't ship goods and, and services around that way. Um, okay, yeah. But um, that's that's a question. Uh, in building a large navy, you're not just talking about being able to fight an enemy. This is a geoeconomic instrument, which is different. Uh, that's why I always written about the fact that navies and armies are vastly different in mission, and they're not easy to compare. And that's one of the weaknesses of jointness as it's practiced today is we want to compare uh, our navies and armies as if they are the same instrument and do the same, uh, perform the same roles. You know, U.S. Army says that its mission is fight and win America's wars. That's not the mission of the U.S. Navy. That's one of the missions of the U.S. Navy. But the U.S. Navy, along with the other forces, navies using a small n uh, letter instead of a big n uh, are those forces that operate in the mediums and dimensions domains if you want to call them, in which uh, we use for trade and economic purposes but humans do not normally inhabit or inhabit very long and i'm talking about the maritime world i'm talking about air space and cyber we don't inhabit those areas we use it for trade connection connection to the global world uh, it's our ability to have a very prosperous economy. It's our ability for communications. But people don't live in those. You don't garrison them. You don't capture them. You don't go around the enemy in them. You do. Uh, it's a whole different form of operating, and it's very difficult to to uh, compare armies and navies. So when the Joint Requirements Board and others meet and they're comparing programs from one services to another, they generally compare it on a war fighting level. You know, this has so much ordinance, it can, you know, uh, be versus this. But in the case of armies and navies, they have different missions. You you look oh. at them differently. And in some cases, size matters. In some cases, so, size may not matter. But um, in the case of navies, you know, small N size generally always matters. So that brings us back to where we were, which is bigger is better, is your is your article basically, mm -hmm. and and this is the argument. So you just mentioned, you know, we have you have the uh, how do we know that standard? Well, here in journalism land, we also have the so what standard. 
So bigger is better. Most people who study most things come away with a, an appreciation that in the end, bigger is better. So we'll apply the so what standard of that. What should we do with that? We, most people know this. You're trying, you're, you, you're trying to advocate here for a larger Navy and more resource to the Navy and why that's important. Is that your so what? What is the so what? What, what, are, what are we supposed to take away with this? Well, the first thing that I want people to take away with is the acknowledgement that a larger fleet is a more useful instrument and has a greater chance of victory uh, than a smaller fleet, even if you think it has a slight technological advantage. And that's not what political leadership has been saying. You have members of the House Armed Services Committee that say numbers don't matter. I mean, there are some who say numbers matter, but you have powerful people. And this has been a refrain for several decades. And my first mission is to have those who are setting that policy admit the risk, admit that, yeah, okay, my statement is that we don't need to be bigger, but I here's the risk we're buying. The risk is that historically, this is an unproven statement. The risk is that historically, larger navies have won. So if you're the so what in this case is, you know, the first step is to admit, you know, on the political level that look, you know, I, we know that larger, just like in your life or my life in which your bank account is larger than smaller, you could do more things with it. Uh, you can, you know, your your life is much more financially secure. Well, that's true in the case of navies too. Uh, so the first point is admitting that. Now the second on the so what is uh, it's time to recognize that the scenarios that we face that if China, Chinese Communist Party is the pacing threat, then we have to allocate the defense resources in such a way to deter or potentially be able to defeat them. And that, in my mind, is to reallocate forces away from land forces towards those navies, small and why? Because the land forces, particularly US Army, have no role whatsoever in a Taiwan scenario, unless, unless we plan on garrisoning Taiwan, you know, and, and fighting on the territory, you know, the actual territory of Taiwan. Well, then you say, oh yeah, land forces are gonna be critical for all fight. Taiwan, uh, a tank battle on the uh, on the uh, eastern, well, actually on the western side of Taiwan where you have access. But if you're not going to do that, then the U.S. Army doesn't have a significant role, or I would argue any role except taking the missions away from navies. And so why are we allocating in the equal split? Uh, and Department of Defense resources. That makes no sense if China is the pacing threat. Now, if you say, well, we have other threats, we plan on going back to Afghanistan, or you know, we're, we're going to do that, or perhaps Russia is more powerful than we ever think they're going to be, um, you know, then you have a justification. But if our justification for our defensive strength is to deter the People's Republic of China, from crossing that 100-mile strait and being able to forcibly annex Taiwan, which they clearly want to do, then you don't deter that by having a large army. You deter that by having forces that could 
sink or swim, uh, sink anything that swims, destroy anything that flies across the Taiwan Strait. Um, that's how you deter it. So my argument on the larger Navy, and I think um, Brett Sadler had had made this or said this uh, or written this. It might have been Brett or it might be might have somebody else, but they said, you know, if you took 4% of the Army's budget and gave it to the Navy, you're going to start building a much bigger fleet. Uh, but we can't do that because jointness says every service has an equal opportunity in every mission and all shall be treated equally. Nobody should be left on the bench in any scenario. You know, when I was um, head of strategy and concepts branch in the Navy Department, I was in the in OPNAV, I was constantly asked, you know, how do we justify the Navy's role in irregular warfare? I tried to explain, you know, Big Navy does not have any role in irregular warfare because that's not conducted at the ocean except in small, very small ways. So if you're, you're asking for resources based on that mission, um, that's a hard sell. Just like if the Army is asking for resources based on a mission in the Western Pacific scenario, to me, that's a hard sell. Uh, what's it going to be? Uh, we're going to put long-range missiles on, um, you know, in, on Guam. Um, I don't know. That doesn't seem to be very significant deterrent. And, oh, by the way, you could put those missiles on ships and move them around. Uh, so in building a bigger fleet, if you say we can't add resources to defense, I agree, perhaps we can't. What I'm saying is that there needs to be a reallocation of resources based on what the mission is. And in doing so, you have to figure out how, what services add to the equation. It's not just a question of, you know, a Navy missile versus an Army missile. It's a question that the, the Navy missiles move around and you could have them do other things in the uh, Arabian Sea if, if necessary for a different contingency. Very difficult to move land forces that way. We're going to have to leave it there. Um, we, we could go on for a, a long time uh, talking about this. We, we've been talking to Professor Sam Tangretti of the U.S. Navy War College. Uh, sir, thank you very much for joining us. Um, the article is Bigger Fleets Win. It's in this uh, edition of Proceedings Magazine uh, under the American Sea Power Project. Uh, if you haven't read the article, check it out. It's well worth your time. Again, thank you for joining us, uh, Dr. Tangretti. We look forward to having you back on. Thanks, Chris. My pleasure. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. It's time for a Squawk Box. And Mr. Cervello has some thoughts on how the United States is responding to the Chinese balloon drifting over the heart of the country. Thanks, Chris. For the better part of a decade, the United States government, particularly DOD, has been preparing for competition with China. This week's balloon discovery and public revelation has demonstrated that the Pentagon may not be as prepared as they would like the American people to believe. The public faces of the administration struggled to convey both the tactical and strategic significance of the balloon's presence over the homeland, leaving many Americans confused and frightened about what this escalation might mean for relations with Beijing. You mean to tell me none of the $817 billion allotted for defense covers the removal of weather balloons illegally operating over our territory? 
as the most technologically advanced country in the history of the world, we're unable to knock this object out of the sky without endangering lives on the ground in rural Montana? These are likely the types of questions that will be battered around kitchen tables across the country this evening because officials have fumbled the ball when explaining what was discovered and how the United States intends to handle it. Competing with an adversary short of conflict is about more than buying ships and airplanes. It's about establishing and maintaining a strategic narrative that reassures audiences at home and abroad when tactical moves catch the public by surprise. During the Cold War, we were very good at this. And based on our performance this week, it's something we need to think about and train on because things are not going to get any easier. Balloons over Montana are likely just the beginning as the Chinese increasingly flex their muscles outside of their backyard. The government's ability to recognize these flexes and respond quickly and confidently will go a long way in maintaining public confidence and minimizing the Chinese PR value of such bad behavior. The same way we have begun training to shoulder Chinese ships at sea and respond to their aggressive air maneuvers, it's time to better prepare to win the narrative. We can no longer afford to be caught flat-footed. We must be ready to act. Thanks, Chris. You're too nice. But speaking of nice, I want to say thank you to all those who came up to me this past week at the American Society of Naval Engineers ASNI Symposium in Northern Virginia. It is always nice to meet listeners, and you better believe we appreciate you. Well, the Cavishers podcast is sponsored in part by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash marine. And by HII. HII is the largest producer of undersea unmanned vehicles making transoceanic missions possible. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. That does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavis. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye. Bye-bye.